0: One Hope Church Well good morning everybody We're going to be in Luke chapter 11 uh, Picking up where we left off last week So if you want to go ahead and, and turn there we'll, we'll start reading there in just a moment um, Back in the days before Facebook, we had to have another place to put all of our cheesy Christian sayings that we like to do, and and one place that's still in use is the church sign. Um, our, you know, obviously, we meet in a house, and so we don't have one of these church signs out front, but there's some, some of them are really funny, some of them are really kind of like hit you in the gut and go, all right, that's pretty good. The others are kind of cringe-worthy. you go, oh man, did you really say that? So some of my favorites, um, I remember seeing this one back when I was in college, it's like, our Sundays are better than Baskin-Robbins, I like that one, that's like, all right, or an alternate on that, our Sundays are low fat, that one's, <laughs> I, I like that one a lot, that, that may be a better one. The, the classic, CH, blank, blank, CH, What's missing? <coughs> You are all right, so oh yeah, um, the other one was sign broken message inside that, those are always a good one, or um, I saw some during the snowstorm up north that um, they said it 's too cold to change the sign, come inside, um, and then one one that always gets me is like, are you looking for a sign from God? This is it, you know, referring to the sign. And so, you know, and that's kind of a funny thing, you know, we we joke about those and sometimes they serve a purpose and sometimes not so much. But there's this idea of looking for a sign, that we're always looking for something to point us in the right direction. Uh, Last week when um, Derek was preaching, back in verse 19 of chapter 11, um, was it verse 19? Maybe it it was a different, verse 16, I'm sorry. It says, others to test him were demanding a sign from heaven. So they had this idea that Jesus was there and they were demanding a sign of who He was. So let's pick up reading, starting in verse 29 of chapter 11. We'll pick up where we left off there. So read with me, starting verse 29, Luke chapter 11. As the crowds were increasing, He began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became assigned to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one... After lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray today that as we open up your word, as we look at it and as we read it, that your light would illumine our minds. It would light up our minds to where we can understand what you'd have for us. Open up our hearts. there's any darkness there, that it would be removed by the light, Lord. Help us to understand what you'd have for us today. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, Jesus starts off um, not pulling any punches. He says, this generation is a weak, wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. And as we just talked about, they're seeking for a sign specifically from heaven because they've already seen Jesus heal people. They've already seen Jesus cast out demons. But that wasn't enough for them. And I have to think, were there other people doing these things? You know, And maybe there were. We certainly see some reports that there were. But was there anyone performing miracles in the same way that Jesus was? But those were kind of earthly miracles. They were things that were happening between Jesus and the people around Him. Were there, but they were looking for a sign from heaven. You know, maybe like what His disciples had asked for a few weeks, or that we looked at a few weeks ago about fire coming down from heaven. They were seeking something extraordinary to talk about. They were seeking entertainment almost. They were not really seeking the truth in faith. They were testing Him. It clearly says they were putting Him to the test. And then in verse 30, it talks about uh, just as Jonah became assigned to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And we remember in the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, it's a great book, read all the way through it, um, how Jonah was a reluctant missionary. God had told him to go to the city of Nineveh, but he hated the people in Nineveh, and probably with good reason. But as he tried to flee from God, God put him back on track. He had him thrown into the sea, he stayed in the belly of a fish for three days, was spit back up onto dry land, and then went on to preach to Nineveh. And so we see that these miraculous circumstances of him being spit up onto the shore. Um, and, and you know, and the thought is that with the acids that are in that fish's stomach, his appearance was probably pretty unusual. That he may have been his skin and his clothes may have been bleached. And so he would have been quite the sight walking up on the beach uh, on that day. And so that made his message even more impactful. And so when he went, he preached out of compulsion. God basically made him do it. He did it begrudgingly, but the people responded and repented. They listened to his message. And then Jesus refers to the Queen of the South, which this is the Queen of Sheba, uh, which Sheba is a city that was in Ethiopia or in Yemen, uh, modern day Yemen. And this story comes from 1 Kings chapter 10 to where. The news of Solomon, how great he was, his wisdom, his wealth, his kingdom, had made it all the way to her. And so she comes to see him. And after she's seen all these things, she's heard him talk. She says this about him in 1 Kings chapter 10. It says, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men! How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom! Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. So, even though this queen was a pagan and a Gentile, she sought out and recognized the truth of God and the reality of God uh, as it was shown through Solomon. So Jesus uses these two people as an example, Jonah and the, uh, and the Queen of Sheba, as examples. Because Jesus, His preaching was greater than that of Jonah. His wisdom was greater than that of Solomon, And just as Jonah was in that fish for three days, Jesus was going to be in the grave for three days. And when he came forward, that would be the main sign that they would have of who he is. And even now, as we look back, a lot of things can be questioned. But there's something about the resurrection. That's the proof on everything else that Jesus said. That's the evidence there. And there's great evidence to support the resurrection of Jesus. So here we have wisdom greater than Solomon's and preaching greater than Jonah's. And what does he say will happen? He says that the Ninevites, that the Queen of Sheba, who responded to God's truth, but these people denied it. They denied the truth of God even though it was closer and clearer than it had ever been. Therefore, that generation would be condemned for their willfully ignorant and defiant nature to have the Son of God in their face speaking truth to them and they rejected it is even worse than uh, those who rejected God in the Old Testament because Jesus was there in front of them. So let's keep looking here. Starting in verse 33, it talks about the lamp. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, under a basket, but on the lampstand. So those who enter may see the light. This is very similar to what Jesus has said elsewhere. But the idea is that we shouldn't ignore the truth of God any more than we would light a lamp and then put it away somewhere. It's, it's wasteful. It makes no sense. It's more pointless than leaving a light on in a room that you're not in. You know, my mom was always, you walk out of the room, you turn off the light. And, you know, it kind of bugs me sometimes when I walk in and there's lights on in different places. And it's like, we're not even, there's, we're not here. Um, so, doing this, taking a lamp, lighting it, putting it away, is more wasteful than, than even that. So, how would we have been exposed to the truth of God and then to put it away, to ignore it. And then he goes to talk about the, the, the eye is the lamp of your body. And he's, of course, talking about the physical eye, but he's really talking about the inward eye, the way that we perceive things. You know, we, have, we talk about our mind's eye, how we look at things and how we perceive them. And the thing is, is that sin and worry and deception and even pleasure can distort our reality where the way that we see things are not the way that they are. And it gets to the point to where the eye of the soul is too diseased to see the light of Christ. If you've, you know, some common eye diseases like cataracts and macular degeneration, uh, sometimes there's things that we can do to help that and other times there's not. But when those things happen, you can't really see the world around you in the same way that you did when your eye was clear. And it's the same spiritually, it's the same mentally when we have these things that can distort and disease our eyes to where we can't see the light of Christ. In verse 35, this, one, this, this sentence may seem a little bit awkward. It said, then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. You know, it's almost something like Yoda would say or something. It just seems, seems backwards. But what he's talking about is this idea of a false enlightenment, Some, how we're biased, where we think we know the truth, but we don't because just because it sounds right and it sounds good doesn't mean that it is because this world is really good at telling us what we want to hear. We see this in the media. We certainly hear this in politicians. We'll see this in whether it's in health gurus or financial gurus, you know, we'll say all these things and it's like, wow, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. You must be right. Um, And and we see this, certainly if you've paid any attention to this election, you've seen how, and this is nothing new, but politicians will say whatever they need to to get enough people to vote for them, whether they actually believe it or not. This world is really good at telling us what we want to hear. And if our core principles, if our beliefs are wrong, our judgment and our actions will be wrong. Proverbs 14 says, there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. We think something's right, but the reality of it is it's not. And the Pharisees and the lawyers were living examples of this. So let's keep reading, starting in verse 37. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisees saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within his charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogue and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you were witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said... I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets, shed since the foundation of the world, may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering." And when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. So going back to the first part here, they invite him to lunch and even though they had been opposing him, Jesus obliged as another opportunity to to speak truth to them. And it was a common that these very religious people would do a ceremonial washing before they would eat. But Jesus didn't do this. Now, this is not about personal hygiene. This is not about washing your hands before you eat. So kids, yes, wash your hands uh, before you go to eat. Um, It's good for all of us. But he's not talking about hygiene here. And it's not even a matter of the law because the Old Testament, yes, there were a lot of washings in the Old Testament for purification and things like that. But this was not one of them. This is a rule that the Pharisees and the scribes had added on later. And so Jesus would not adhere to a man-made rule that was treated as God's rule because they had elevated all these other rules up to the same level as God's. Because even in the Old Testament, purifying the heart is what was required. There were these external things, but it was the heart that mattered because righteous living must start with faith and repentance in verse 40, he talks about how, they, uh, how the one who made the outside is also the one who made the inside. And they were more concerned with the outside than the inside. Because we have to be... We can't, if we just focus on the outside, we're missing the point. There has to be that inner righteousness as well. Because as he says, all of it belongs to God. Our outward actions and our heart, our motivation and our faith, all of it belongs to God. Verse forty-two, he talks about. It says, "But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others." So the tithe, which is giving ten percent, came from the Old Testament in Leviticus twenty-seven, and they interpreted this very rigidly, to where it wasn't just the big crops, you know, the big things that they would uh, tithe off of. But it was also these little things, the herbs. You know, you know we have a couple little herbs in pots. It's a, it's a very small thing. But they were saying, all right, we've got to give one-tenth of this little herb as part of our tithe to be in a here to, to the law because we don't want anyone to say that we weren't doing something right. They were interpreting the tithe very literally and very rigidly. And Jesus names the least of these things to make a point because it was easy to say, I'll give you my money. But I'm not going to give you my heart because it's easier to tithe than to provide justice and love and mercy and humility. Money's easy. You can just write a check for that. But these other things are hard. And even in the Old Testament, through the prophet Micah, God speaks to this Micah chapter 6, uh, part of it reads With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Justice, kindness, and humility. If we have those things in relation to God, most everything else is going to work itself out. If we have that right relationship, they had certainly been commanded to give all those things. Don't get me wrong. But they had missed out. They were doing all the externals, but their hearts were not changed. Being strict in the external and in the physical does not excuse being slack in the internal and the spiritual. We can't just do what's on the outside. They were absolutely right to tithe, but they were wrong in their motivation and their intentional hypocrisy in other things. Because what we know is that greed was a prominent characteristic of the Pharisees. Uh, And a little bit later in Luke, it'll refer to them as lovers of money. So they would do all these things. It even says in other places, they devoured the houses of widows. They were taking from people who were the most poor for themselves. But, oh, but we're tithing. We're doing it right. So you may be asking the question, okay, well, so should I be tithing? Well, that's a good question. Um, if you if you have the Foundations book, I encourage you to look at chapter 9 on that. There's a We talk about that there. Uh, and also, and if you really want to go a little bit more in depth, uh, back in April when we were going through 2 Corinthians, and we looked at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I did a talk on that, and you can find the podcast and listen to it. But just a few, few comments on that. Um, in addition to the tithe, the people in the Old Testament gave many gifts and offerings above the tithe and they were also responsible to help the poor. So that it was not just, all right, 10% and I'm done. 10% was the starting point and then there was all these things on top of it. And then the tithe was part of the law. As I said, it was in Leviticus and it mentioned in other places. But we as believers, we on the other side of Jesus and the cross we're not held to the law. You're like, okay, I'm good. Thanks. That's that's nice. Um, but here's what the New Testament does say. This is the instruction that we have as followers of Jesus. First, we know that God loves a cheerful giver. It should be something that we enjoy doing. We should enjoy giving. And the, the New Testament does warn that wealth gives us a false sense of security. If we try to find our security and our well-being and our comfort in wealth, It's going to be misplaced. It also tells us to store up our treasure in heaven rather than on this earth. Because the things on this earth, you can't take it with you. They can be gone in an instant. So if all your effort is to build up treasure on earth, you're putting putting something on. You're building a house on sand instead of the rock. And the New Testament tells us to live sacrificially, that we should... Put our interests behind those of others who have who have need. Um, the the businessman L G Laterno, I used this quote last time. I'll get a little more mileage out of it. He says, "The question is not how much of my money I give to God, but rather how much of God's money I keep for myself." Because that's what we do. We keep for ourselves and say, "Well, I've given I've given God you know a tip, but I'm keeping the rest of it for myself." So that's the real question here. Because when we do that, when we're not generous, when we don't give, when we don't help those who are in need, when we don't do things to help share the gospel with those who uh, don't have access to it, we're really disregarding justice for others. And we're disregarding uh, and we don't have a love for God. And that's what Jesus warns about. He says that they disregard justice and the love of God. And this justice to other people and the love of God because our hypocrisy, the Pharisees' hypocrisy in this affects, affected others and hypocrisy in our own life will affect others as well as our relationship to God. Jesus criticized them in verse 43. He says, For you love the chief seats in the synagogue and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Being a Pharisee was a big deal. You know, it was... It was kind of being a Jewish celebrity because they would dress differently. They would have these things to draw attention to themselves. Um, and so they would be seated in places of prominence whenever the, the people would gather. Um, so you can see that there's all these things that feed into the ego of a Pharisee. And that's what they were doing. That's what their attention was. They were receiving the praise of men but not focused on getting the praise of God. They were more concerned about what people thought about them than what God thought about them. They would even, when they gave, they would do so in such a way that it would draw attention to themselves so that people would see it. And they would offer these long prayers out in public so that people would see them and give attention to them. Say, Oh, look how spiritual he is. He's, he's praying really long time out in the middle of the street. Uh, you know, are these things like that. And so they would receive all this attention from men and say, oh man, he's, he's such a great guy. And what does Jesus say about him? In Matthew, he says, they have received their reward in full. That this earthly reward is all they're going to get from that. And there's no spiritual, there's no eternal benefit to, do, to them doing that. He says, he says, you are like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Some about a tomb where maybe the... The brush has grown up, and you don't see a marker. You don't see where it is. You know, we had uh, it was in the news a few weeks ago that as they were expanding one of the buildings on UGA, they discovered these graves that were there that they didn't know were there. They were not marked. They were so all this care has to be taken care of to to take care of those uh, properly. And so we have this with these concealed tombs. Elsewhere, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs, meaning that they were painted nice and white on the outside, but there was death inside. And people could walk over them. And if you came in close to a grave or to a dead body, you were then ceremonially unclean. You could not participate in in certain things. And so people would walk by these concealed graves and not even realize that they've been uh, contaminated or, or made unclean. Because the thing is, we can look at someone and not recognize the pollution that is in them, we can be fooled by what's on the outside. But then a lawyer speaks up in verse 45, and I just have to say he asked for it. You know, if, if Jesus is railing on one guy, and you say, hey, Jesus, we're insulted too, you're kind of asking for it, you know, because um, it's not going to say, oh, it wasn't like Jesus was going to say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. Um, That's not really the way Jesus would, would speak to folks. Um, and so when he says lawyers, you may be thinking like lawyers like we have today. It's a little bit different. Uh, these were what we would otherwise call scribes or expounders of the law. They would take God's law and they would interpret it, but then they would also come up with all these other rules to go around it. Kind of like this washing before a meal. This was not something that was in God's law, but these scribes and Pharisees uh, had come up with them to, uh, to say, well, let's just be extra careful here. And we see that, you know, when we're righteously rebuked, Our natural response is to defend ourselves instead of hearing the truth. Now, these lawyers could have went, yeah, Jesus, yeah, that's right about us too. But no, they said, hey, we're offended, you know. That's our natural response to try to defend ourselves. Because these scribes used rules that were rigorously enforced by heartless men to control others while exempting themselves. They said, these rules are good for y'all but not for us because, you know, we're scribes, we're lawyers, we're Pharisees. We don't necessarily have to follow those rules. You know, we get upset when others sin differently than we do. And we look down on them. We have a double standard to where, well, what applies to you doesn't really apply to me. And we judge others primarily in areas where we feel ourselves are doing well. helps us make feel superior. It's like little kids, they'll insult or pick on each other because it makes them feel better. You know, say, well, I'm better than you because you're not as fast as I am or you're not as smart as I am or something, you're not as good looking as I am. It's in us from the beginning. And we do that in these spiritual things as well. Because if I'm a greedy person, it's hard for me to call somebody else out about being greedy. Now, that they're into lust, I'll hammer on them all day long because i you know that's i'm different than that so it's easy for us to get on people in areas where they're different than where their shortcomings are different than ours but we overlook the areas where we ourselves are in sin all we ever see of another person's faith is the external so we must be slow to judge the external can be a lie Only God knows the heart. Now, we can see fruit, we can see evidence, but we can't look into a person's heart and know for certain where they are. Now, if a person is inconsistent, flagrant sin, there's probably an issue there. But just because somebody's doing all the right things, you can't say, oh man, they're so spiritual. Maybe. Maybe not. Verse 47, he says, You build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who would killed them. They would take these, what were the traditional tombs of the prophets. Some of these you can still find today, and whether they're the actual tombs or not, who knows. But they build these up, and they make them really nice. And, you know, it's their way of showing respect and honor for the prophets. But this was really pretend. This was really false. You know, we like to think, you know, if we had been there, we wouldn't have mistreated them. We would have been different. We would have listened to them. You know, and I think about today, a little more modern example for us. Uh, we went to Washington, D.C. back in August. I went for work and we spent a couple of days seeing the sites. And there's monuments to all these great men and women around the city. And one of the newest ones is for Martin Luther King, Jr. Now, he obviously was a great man, has this, uh, he did really important work. And so there's this great monument to him. He had his shortcomings. He was not perfect, all right? so don't misunderstand. But we like to think, would I have supported him if I'd been alive during that time? If I was in my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation, they have a very different view of what happened then than probably I do, generally. And so I like to think that I would have been on the right side of history there, but maybe not. I may not have been. And so it's easy for us these 30, 40, 50 years later to put up a monument and say, this is a very important man. He did a great thing when maybe a few generations before we might have been the ones opposing him. I have to think some of the same mindset was what they were applying to the prophets. They were like, oh, the prophet said such great things. We just don't bother to pay attention to them. Because if they had really listened to the prophets, they would have recognized Jesus for who he was. And he says that it was their fathers who killed them, and so that even though they were not the ones who did it, they witness it and they approve of it. So it could have been their literal fathers, grandfathers, and so on back, that were the ones who persecuted them. But it was the people who had the same mindset. It was like, well, we know God better than you do. So we can we're not going to listen to your prophets because just about all the prophets were treated very poorly. They were killed. They were run out of town. They were persecuted. They, there were those at the time who had the same hypocrisy, the same deafness toward God. And so in a way, they were endorsing what had happened generations before. And it says that they killed them. It's the same thing that they would soon do to Jesus and then Stephen, and then many of the, uh, the apostles after that. It's the same thing that Saul was doing before he met Jesus. In verse 51, he refers to Abel and Zechariah. Abel, we know from Genesis, he was the first person to be murdered. And then we have also Zechariah, and he uses these as examples, just in the same way that he used Nineveh, and the Queen of Sheba as an example. He uses them as examples to bookend, to represent all the previous martyrs for the faith up to that point. And by killing, by rejecting and killing Jesus, who was greater than all of them, that generation was guiltier than the previous ones combined. So the Pharisees and the lawyers had hidden God's truth from the people through man-made rules and hypocrisy. They were focusing on a facade, on the external. Now, a facade, if you don't know, is the, it's something they use in television to, or movies to represent a building. It, there's this TV show called The Walking Dead, uh, and there's one of the main cities there is called Woodbury. Now, Woodbury is not a real town. It's, a lot of it is actually shot in Sonoy. And if you go there, you can go to Sonoy, and there's a sign that says, Welcome to Woodbury, even though it's not really Woodbury. And there's the city hall, or the the town hall that's used in the TV show, is actually just a facade. It's the front of the building, has doors, windows, and if you were to walk around it, there's no building there. It's just the front. There's a sidewalk up to it and everything. You would just from the street think it's a real building, but it's not. And that's the way our lives can be when we're focusing on the external. We can have this thing that looks really good, but if you peek around the corner... There's nothing there. If you try to open up the door, it's just woods on the other side. It's not a building. If you look through the window, there's nothing there. Because it's always easier to keep up appearances than to keep a clean heart. Because when, when we do good things, there's some reinforcement. It's like, oh man, that was so good of you to do that. Or thank you so much. Or... Man, that was a great message that you preached or something like that. There's all these reinforcements when we do good. You know, when a child does something good, you reinforce that so that they keep doing good things. And if they do something bad, you punish that. All we see is the external in our lives. There's no one there to reward the private victories when we resist temptation. There's no one there other than God to reward those things. There's no one there when I'm tempted to do something wrong and I go, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm tempted for my thoughts to go somewhere that they shouldn't and I reject that. I move on to something else. There's, I don't go running to my wife and go, hey, I just resisted, resisted temptation. She'd be like, what? You know, That's not the way that most people, um, sometimes children do run up and say, hey, I just did a really good thing because they're looking for that reward. But most of the time in our lives we don't, go around talking about those private victories. We don't talk about those. And so there's no one there to reward it other than God. And we got to be okay with that. We have to know that God sees those things that are done in secret and will reward them. He talks about the key of knowledge. This is not the key to knowledge, but true knowledge is the key to heaven in a couple of chapters that we'll get to a little bit later. Well, he says here, these people who had the key to knowledge, who knew all this about God, who knew the Scriptures, who should have recognized Jesus for who He was, and they didn't. He says, you yourselves did not enter. And if that was not bad enough, you hindered those who were entering. That's a pretty heavy condemnation. Because if you want to mess up your own life, that's one thing. If you're going to help mess up other people's lives, that's even worse. In a few chapters in Luke 17, Jesus says to His disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Wow. That's intense. See, spiritual leaders, and even just those who proclaim to be a Christian in places where there are non-Christians. But really spiritual leaders have the potential to do great harm. When When they're looked to as the example and they set the bad example, they can do a lot of harm. But these principles apply to all of us because there are people watching all of our lives. There are people watching what we do and how we act. And they're looking for an opportunity to say, you said you were a Christian and I know what you did. That's not a real Christian. Why would I want to be a Christian if they do that? So we have to ask ourselves, do we do things, intentional or not, that cause others to stumble? And especially in regards to children, and especially in regards to less mature believers, do we do things that cause them to stumble even if we're not meaning to? So as we look at this passage as a whole, I want to ask you, are you seeking signs instead of walking in faith? Are you looking for signs from God instead of walking in faith in the way that He's told you to go? And I'm not talking about blind faith. As I've said this before, this is not, I'm just going to go this direction and have faith that things are going to work out. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not blind faith. There's evidence that points us in the right direction and it's not generic it's a faith in Jesus not just in that the grand scheme of things things are going to work out but it's a very specific faith in Jesus and who he is now if if you're not a believer or if you're if you're not quite sure about all this are you waiting for a sign to start truly following him are are you expecting that there's going to be some great sign in the sky or I actually see sometimes at sporting events, somebody will get a, uh, one of these airplanes that writes stuff in the sky and say, Jesus, here's your sign. You know, if you're looking for a sign from God, here it is. Um, are you looking for a sign to truly start following Him? And for all of us, are there other people's opinions, are other people's opinions of your righteousness more important than the reality of your walk with God? Do what people think about you is that more important to you than the reality of your faith? Now, don't think that I'm advocating sinful living to say, well, my faith is right, so I can do whatever I want to. Well, your faith is probably not right if you have that attitude. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't seek evidence and that we shouldn't seek guidance from God. Absolutely, we should do that. But seeking signs and living a legalistic life where you're just worried about following the rules, that doesn't require a lot of faith. It doesn't require any. Because you, you say, oh, I'll, I'll just do this and hope things work out. Living a life that is pleasing to God does. The Bible says that without faith it is impossible to please God. As we read in Micah, it's not about... The sacrifices, it's not about pouring all this stuff and giving that to God. It's to do justly, it's to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. That is what it means, that's what God is calling us to. And if we want to please Him, if we want to be obedient to Him, that's where it has to start. And we're going to have our open time. And during this time, it's when we come to remember Jesus, the sacrifice that He paid for us. And we don't always remind people of this, but during this time, anyone can request a song. Anyone can pray. Um, we do have, if you're going to read Scripture, you're certainly welcome to do that. If you're going to offer any teaching from that, um, certainly in light of the conversations we've had over the past few years, I hope we understand that that, that was a, uh, a place for believers to participate and it's a place for, for men to take the lead in that. We want, to be, we want to do things the way that God has told us to. But this is a time for all of us to participate to come to the table, to remember Him, and to worship Him. Certainly request a song, read Scripture, take from the bread and the cup as you're ready to do that. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank You that Your words are so clear into what it takes to please You. But Lord, it has to start with a right heart. It starts with faith and repentance. Of turning away from trying to do things on our own, but trusting in the work that You did on the cross. Lord, we know from Your Word that if we take care of those things, that's where the ability to live a life that's pleasing to You comes from that when our hearts are right, that we won't tolerate sin in our lives. That with the Holy Spirit, we will be we'll better able to understand Your truth. doesn't mean that we'll get everything right. doesn't mean that we'll agree on everything. But we loathe, that, Lord, that's the first step. And that as we mature in our faith, we'll be drawn closer and closer to You. We'll be, more, be made more and more like Your Son. So Lord, help us to understand today. Help us to see. Help us to take the step of faith. To follow you. To see the sign of Jesus who was put in a grave but rose again. Knowing there's no greater testimony to who He is than that. Lord, and there's such an honor that we're able to benefit from that. these things in